since there's only one week left in that series of Thursday evening Bible studies, and we've already finished the book of Hebrews, I decided to take the topic for our study tonight, and we have mentioned the possibility of doing this before, and there were some details before it. So tonight I'd like to talk to you about the subject of angels, the biblical view of angels, and I'll begin with a little bit. Our Father, we thank you that you've given us this day in which we can not only live, but live in your presence, live under your care. And we thank you for the relationship that we have with you through the Savior Jesus Christ. We do thank you that you gave us life for us, that you loved us with an everlasting love. Indeed, that he rose from the dead and ascended on high and now rules over all creation for the benefit of the church. And he is here to the church. That spirit lives in us, and we thank you for this gift as well, the gift of new life. We pray that your spirit would be with us as we turn to your holy word, so we would understand it, not simply as a point of curiosity, but we'd understand it as a word that means to correct us and instruct us in righteousness, to show us how we should live our lives. Lord, we pray you would help us understand properly the subject of angels that we've chosen tonight, so we'd be faithful to your word as we study it. And that again, this subject would not be for our mere curiosity, but it would change our lives. So we look to you and to your promise in Jesus' name. I wanted to emphasize that tonight's study is going to be on the biblical doctrine of angels because it would be very easy for us to do a really announcement of historical or topical study of angels that has very little to do with the Bible at all. The subject of angels has been a matter of cultural fascination and curiosity uh, throughout the ages, really. And uh, if you wanted to get into popular folklore and traditions and speculation, there's plenty of material, uh, much more than we need for a 45-minute Bible study. Uh, there, of course, it wouldn't be a Bible study if we did that. And so it may be that after I get done, some of the things you are concerned about or have heard about or wonder about angels will not have been dealt with because many of the traditions about angels do not come from the Bible at all. And I'll begin with a common, I think, misconception of angels. We tend to think of angels if we watch Hallmark reading uh, cards and uh, listen to uh, <laughs> 50s and 60s rock and roll and so forth. I think that the, yeah, there, there's an ageology of rock and roll, believe me, the rest of another night. We tend to think of it as having wings, right? Angels have wings, and they they float around, and usually have harps in their hands, right? And they tend to do really strange sorts of things on earth. Well, that isn't really a biblical view of angels. In fact, there are all kinds of angels that don't have wings at all. As far as we know, only two orders of angels have wings. You can make me feel real good tonight. Can someone tell me what orders of angels have wings? Megan, you know? Cherubim and seraphim. That's right, but the angels are not exhausted by the orders of cherubim and seraphim, as we will see. So anyway, that's just one real easy example of a cultural concept of angels that doesn't fit the biblical model whatsoever. I put a little outline on the uh, board, what I'd like to go through in this few times. First, I'm going to talk about the word angel, and then the second nature of angels, the ranks of angels, the history of angels, and functions. We're going to be systematic. But then I'm going to answer the real question, and, and the one that makes it worth studying, so that it's not Nearly a matter of curiosity. So what? And even the Bible teaches all this stuff about angels. Big deal. How does that change my life? And I'm going to predict that if you're good students and you're diligent and listening, your hearts are open to God's word, it will change your life. The doctrine of angels makes a real big difference to us where we live our lives. First of all, the word angel. In the Greek, as well as in the Hebrew, the Greek word is angelos, or we have to read the English word angel. In the Greek Hebrew, the word that is used for angel can apply to a messenger. That's really what the word means, someone who uh, brings a message. In Luke 7.24, we're going to be looking at a lot of verses. 7.24, the Greek word that is used 
is the same as that for angels in the supernatural sense. But it's obvious here that there's no special meaning. And when the messengers of John were departed, when the angels of John were departed, he began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, so forth and so on. And so, a simple messenger. In the Old Testament, the word for angels is used of prophets in Isaiah 42, 19. It is used of priests in Malachi 2, verse 7. And I believe, and you can follow this up in my uh, study series on the book of Revelation if you want to know more about it, I believe that in Revelation 1, 20, the letters are sent to the angels of the churches. I believe that refers to New Testament ministers, the teaching elders of the churches. In Isaiah 43, verse 9, Christ, the coming Messiah, is called the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. So the word can refer to ordinary messengers, even religious messengers that are human, priests, prophets, New Testament ministers. But usually in the Bible, the word is used of heavenly beings, at least somewhat close to what we customarily think of as angels. We're talking about the special nature of these heavenly beings we're talking about. It's important to remember that Angels are created beings. Turn to Colossians 1, verse 16. Colossians 1, 16. For in him that is in Christ, actually it can be translated in I think it should be, by him, for by him were all things created, in the heavens and upon the earth, things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things created through him and unto him. Now that reference to thrones and dominions, principalities and powers is a reference to angelic orders, ranks of angels. And even if we didn't know that, the opening statement that everything is created by him, visible or invisible, would cover angels anyway. So angels are created beings. Psalm 148, verses 2 and 5, leads us to that conclusion as well. Psalm 148, verses 2 and 5. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Verse 5, let them praise the name of Jehovah, for he commanded and they were created. So all of these hosts were created by God. Therefore, we have to do away with many polytheistic religions and superstitious religions that have a number of sub-deities, almost um, uh, of the same nature as God, uh, being quasi-godlike, and which are not godlike. They are created beings. And Jesus created them. Okay? So, away with all these little stories about Jesus being the best little angel in heaven, and then God chose him to be his son. Okay? That is heresy. That is not pizza. That is heretical. Jesus created the angels. Secondly, not their nature, you want to put in your notes, they are incorporeal beings. They are incorporeal. Strange word. What does incorporeal mean? Does? That's right. They do not have physical bodies as we understand corpus or corporeal bodies. Um, Hebrews 1.14 Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve the sake of them that shall inherit salvation? The author of Hebrews categorizes angels as spiritual beings, as spirits. Um, and I won't take the time to look this up, but if you want to check Luke 24, verse 39, you notice that Jesus himself indicates that he's not a spirit. He says, you know, touch me, feel me, he's fixed in that setting, he has an actual body, so don't call me a spirit. And yet the angels are spirits. 
In fact, they are immortal spirits. Luke 20, verse 36. Luke 20, verse 36. For neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels, and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus speaks of the new world to come in the order of the resurrection, and he says, we will be like angels, meaning we will not be able to die. So angels are immortal. Does that mean they are eternal? No. So they have a beginning, they have no end. Once God creates them, they never die. Now this will raise some interesting questions later. When man fell into sin by rebellion against God, he died. Not only spiritually, eternally, you know, the body of man died, and there will be a resurrection. In the case of the angels who rebelled against God, they do not experience what we call death. Something else happens to them, and when we get to that, I'll tell you what that is. Much more dreadful. As a matter of fact, it precludes the possibility of salvation. The angels are created beings, they are spiritual in nature, they are immortal. We need to be aware of the fact that they are very personal and personable. Both personal and personable beings. That they are able of, they are able to love and to exist. That's one of my favorite passages in all the scriptures, the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son, where we learn that uh, when the prodigal son returns, the father throws a party, right? And he rejoices because his son has returned. And that, in the, Jesus explains, that corresponds to the fact that when a sinner is saved, the angel from heaven rejoices. That's a, a very humbling thing to me to think. The day that I set the Christ as my Savior, the angels threw a party in heaven. They rejoiced that I was found by God. In 1 Peter 1, verse 12, we read that the things in the Old Testament, the teachings and prophecies of the Old Testament that looked ahead to the suffering of Jesus Christ as our Savior, are things that angels desire to look into. I want you to appreciate it. You came tonight saying, you know, I'd like to know more about angels. I would desire to look into Well, they have the same kind of feeling. It, especially in the days of the Old Testament, when God was speaking of a suffering servant, the angels, they wondered about it. They want to know more about it. Why would God's son suffer? And so we read of their desire, their love, their rejoicing. In Hebrews 1.6, we read that they worship. They are capable of offering worship to God. And when he again brings in the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So all the angels of God are to worship the Son of God, who is their creator, remember? Even though they scratch their heads and wonder about this, that God would send his son to suffer, when he comes into the world, the order given by the Father is they should worship him. In Luke 1.13, this one, I don't have to read it. Angels are able to talk. You see them bringing announcements. After all, they are messengers. He would have messengers to be able to talk. In Matthew 24.36, Jesus uses an example um, of our inability to know things unless the uh, Father uh, reveals them, and he says even the angels don't know certain things. So they do know some things, but they don't know everything. In Genesis 19, angels appear, and they uh, also leave the scene in that story, so the angels are able to um, engage in locomotion, that is, to move from one place to another. They are not omnipresent. Another misconception that some people have is that angels can be all sorts of places at once. They can't. They are localized, and yet they are spiritual. In Psalm 103, verse 20, these very special creatures that we're talking about are described as Psalm 103, 20. 
Bless Jehovah, ye his angels that are mighty in strength that fulfill his word, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Two more things about these creatures. In Matthew 18, 10, we learn that angels, or at least one rank of angels, but perhaps all angels, have the special privilege of beholding God's face. Matthew 18, verse 10. See that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. Has modern cinema taken away our ability to be enthralled by such descriptions? These are very unusual beings. They are yet, they are immortal. They are incorporeal, and yet they are mighty in strength. And they are localized. They are personal and personal goals to you. Not only are they mighty in strength, but they, uh, they have very strange abilities. I'll give an example. Look at Acts 12, verse 7. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shined in the cell, and he smote Peter on the side and awoke him, saying, Rise up quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. Peter is in a prison cell. Okay? And without anyone coming and knocking on the door or unlocking it and opening it and let someone in, an angel just appears in his cell. And wakes him up in another strange way, hits him alongside his head, apparently. Says, Peter, get up quick and his chains fall off. These angel things that we can't do. They can show up in someone's jail cell and, and get rid of the uh, get rid of the chains. Um, look at number twenty two thirty one. Then Jehovah opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of Jehovah standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell on his face. So Balaam's having trouble with his donkey. You know, Balaam's ass will not move ahead. So then it's really a test with his beast. But then the Lord opens his eyes, and he sees that there's an angel with a drawn sword in the way. And here's the thing that's interesting. The donkey could see the angel, and the prophet couldn't. He's right had to open his eyes and say, oh, now I understand why the donkey's not going to move ahead. He's doing things. I don't want to so naturalize or, or make you so familiar with the subject that you lose the sense of wonder about them. They are immortal, mighty, incorporeal. They behold the face of God, and they are so wonderful, apparently, that the temptation is there for people to worship them. How does visibility reconcile with incorporeality? Okay, the incorporeality of angels is a um, is a feature that is subject to the sovereign disposition of God, because though they are and they can appear in jail cells and be invisible to prophets and yet seen by donkeys in these kind of strange combinations of attributes. They can also have physical bodies. They can take, you know, uh, the form of a corporeal uh, appearance because um, Abraham feeds angels. Um, Lot protects angels, you know, in his house he goes with. Um, so it turns out that the corporeality of angels is variable. And when I say they are incorporeal, my point is their existence does not depend upon a physical body. And yet, whatever body they have, though not physical in the sense that we understand it, is localized. They are not everywhere. I wanted to point out that uh, we are not to worship angels. Colossians 2.18. Very serious heresy and um, violation of the commandments of God, in fact, to worship anyone except the following God, and that includes angels. Colossians 2.18. Colossians 2.18. 
Let no man rob you of your prize by a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, dwelling in the things that he had seen vainly puffed up by his flesh and mind, not holding fast the head through Jesus Christ. For those who do know something about angels tend to take it so seriously that it's, it's a temptation to worship them. Can you remember another example of that? One that's close to my heart because I spent so long studying this book. Book of Revelation. You notice that John did that too when an angel was sent to John to tell him something. He falls down. An angel says, stop doing that. I love the Greek. He says, knock it off. Stop it, John. Worship only God. I'm not God. And yet, John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, made the mistake of thinking he should be in a reverential and worshipful position before an angel of God. Because they are fascinating beings. The next thing, and then we go to quickly, is to point out that they are numerous and apparently ordered in rank. There's a hierarchy of angels. That they are numerous is best proven, I think, by Revelation 5 11. John says, And I saw and I heard a voice of many angels round about the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was, so the mathematicians get out your calculators. Here's the number of angels. You wanted to know? I answer your question. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands on top of that. So that's 10,000 times 10,000. But there's, there's, there's a few thousand more you've got to throw in there as well. That's a lot of creatures. Right? It's very likely this is a way of saying there's more than you can have. But there's at least that many. What, 100 million? Is that what you said? 100 million. Plus. Orders of angels or ranks of angels, as I put it on the board, is evident from a few passages. I can't look at all of these, I'm going to run out of time. But let's turn to Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 6, where we read of the seraphim. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 6, the seraphim. Above the throne of God, John, excuse me, Isaiah sees these creatures. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With flame he covered his face, and with flame he covered his feet, and with flame he did fly. Verse 6. Then flew one of the seraphim under me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. So they have wings that are used for flying. But they have three sets of them. Only one set used for flying. One set is used to cover their feet. There's a whole sermon there. The angels dare not expose their feet in the presence of God. Another set he covers his face in the presence of God. There's another set of flies. And what are these seraphim saying? Holy, holy, holy. That's all they saying. The thing of the holiness of God, day in and day out, they never stop. There's another order of angels mentioned in the Bible, the cherubim. By the way, in Hebrew, please remember that the ending, I am, is a way to make the word plural. That's a special case, in fact, the ordinary way to make the word plural. And so, seraphs and seraphim, the same thing. Cherub is the English way of saying it. Cherubim would be the Hebrew way. Cherubim are not grown-up cherubs. There's another one. I and mean, if you're to take a quiz of all the things you know, people think cherubs are little seven baby angels. Isn't that right? <laughs> they are. A cherub is a single um, instance of a cherubim. cherubim right? So, we don't have in the Bible baby angels, as far as I know. You don't have to prove it to me if you want to continue believing that. The cherubim are an order 
although in folks that are not like the seraphim, one of the ways in which they are different is that they do not have three sets of names. They have one set of names. We read of the cherubim in that they sealed the Garden of Eden against Adam and Eve returning after they were thrown out. The cherubim were placed on the Ark of the Covenant, remember, above the mercy seat. God is pictured as seated um, among the cherubim. And the, perhaps the best-known passage dealing with cherubim is found in Ezekiel's prophecy in Vision, where a very unusual, probably even a, a subcategory of cherubim is being seen there, because they're there in having four faces and four ways. And in some senses, having the appearance of a man. But they fly really fast. There's a lot of things in this prophecy that I can't stop to get into. In Revelation, we read of strange creatures like that as well with four faces, and they're probably another version of cherubim. So we have the seraphim, we have the cherubim. We have two particular angels that are referred to by name that have a special rank as well. Gabriel is one of them. In Luke 1, verses 19 and 26, we read something about the special angel Gabriel. Luke 1, verses 19 and 26. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak unto you and to bring you these good tidings. Verse 26, Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin be crossed to a man in his judgment. And um, I don't want to make up the possible stories. But there must be some sense of wonder and joy in the fact that Gabriel got to announce the birth of Satan. Gabriel stands in the presence of God. In the book of Daniel, chapter 8, verse 16, as well as chapter 9, verse 21, we read that Gabriel mediated God's revelation to Daniel. So Gabriel had some special place in the presence of God and fulfilling the will of God. But then we have an angel, another angel mentioned by name, that has actually given the name of his rank. Help me out. Right, Michelangelo, right? Michael the angel. We read it in Daniel 10, verses 13 and 21. And then I want to look at the New Testament references. Uh, Jude, the ninth verse, in Revelation 12, 7. Jude 9, But Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, disputed about the body of Moses, but dared not bring against him a railing judgment. It says, rather, the Lord beneath you. Uh, Doug did a special study of Jews a little while back in our congregation. What did, you, what did you learn about Michael the Archangel? I don't know. Stop maybe watching your little synopsis. Yeah, well, he was respectful. He opened the back of the New Old Testament. He disputed about the body of Moses. Was that, what was that all about? What dispute did they have over the body of Moses? Yeah, <laughs> Revelation 12, I just thought maybe you had the answer. <laughs> Revelation 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels going forth to war with the dragon, and the dragon warred and his angels. Michael apparently is the captain of the king here, in some sense, right? And then there's war between the demons and the angel of God. Michael's the leader. He's the archangel, which means. What? The angel, the head angel. I don't know. Go ahead. Uh, the arch, are you talking about the arch of the seven? No, no. Arch here, A R C H. In the same way that we speak of the. Arch. Uh, well, archbishop. Arch. Okay. I always thought it was the arch. There is another word, arch. The 
Now that's the mathematicians. How many total ranges are there? Roughly. <laughs> 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 we know that two thirds would be equal to what? A hundred million plus. But I, I appreciate it because I think that is what the Bible says. There's just a lot of them. And I'm not absolutely sure that the one third should be interpreted literally either. Because um, proportions in the book of Revelation often have a different meaning than just uh, literal mathematical. Can you replace an Isaiah or a Senator when you No, not one third with him, but Isaiah does refer to uh, the morning star. Lucifer, uh, fallen. But I don't believe that that's a reference to Satan at all. That's a reference to the king of Babylon who is called Lucifer in morning star. Okay. So originally we're all holy. I was beginning to prove this to you. Here's the sixth verse. Angels that kept not their own principality, but left their proper habitation, he hath kept in everlasting bonds under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. They've left their original place and their proper place, and they're now being reserved unto judgment. And then look at 2 Peter 2, verse 4. 2 Peter 2, at the fourth verse. For if God spared angels when they but cast them down to hell and committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And the argument goes on, he spared not the ancient world and so forth, and how much more. Okay, so the angels uh, were originally all good, but some rebelled against God, left their proper place, and they have been reserved unto everlasting judgment ever since the day of their fall. And in fact, committed to prisons of darkness. Does that mean they're not active in the world? This is an easy question. Are the demons active in the world? Yeah. The Bible says they're in chains waiting for judgment. It's not just in principle. What this means is that though they are active in the world, their chaining has reference to a particular kind of limitation. They're not going to escape judgment. God has turned them over already that final destiny. And I, I bring that out because in Revelation 20 we read that Satan is in chains as well. The passage tells us what the chains mean, that he can deceive the nations no longer. Jesus put him in chains and Satan cannot keep the nations from being converted. And yet our, uh, I'm afraid our dispensational friends make a real uh, mistake and they say, well, if Satan can change, then he can't be doing anything. Well, the demons are in chains, and we know they were very active and continue to be active in the world. They were active during the life of Jesus. Jesus cast them out, right? Cast them out of one uh, person and sent them into the pigs at one point. What, hap what happens to pigs when they get demon possessed? Yeah, they tend to run over cliffs. Turn into rain. Turn into all. Uh, I don't know about that, but they, um, they ran over the cliff and into... Uh, of destruction into the abyss, which, by the way, in uh, Semitic uh, imagery was a picture of hell. The bottom of the ocean was about to be the abyss of hell. And so as they go over the cliff into the abyss, they're being consigned back to hell where they belong. What is the What differentiation are you making in the use of the word demon? I'm not aware that there is any special Greek terminology um, that would differentiate between a fallen angel and a demon, the one and the same. Well, my question is why do you have an assumption that you didn't see the text? Or no. Is it according to the text that they've gone back to the people? Yes. The, the text uses those terms for these beings that are cast out. First yeah. okay. John 3 um, refers to sinful angels, verse 8 and 10. 
In Matthew 25:31, we read of holy angels. Being a sinful angel and a holy angel, what is the difference? There's another reference to angels. I'm going to have to read it. 1 Timothy 5, verse 21 speaks of the elect angels. And so, even in the case of angels, the differentiation between them as good and evil is based on God's predestinating sovereignty. God chose certain angels not to fall, and He chose certain angels to fall. So they are now divided. Originally they were all holy. They are now divided. And in Hebrews 2.16, this is what I've been reading to get to, the Bible tells us they do not have the opportunity to be saved. For verily not to angels does he give help, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Okay. When we fell into sin, when the human race fell into sin, that brought about the consequence that if an angel is under the we die. They are immortal. Though they never die, they never have the opportunity to be saved. Once they fell into sin, their uh, damnation was sealed forever. Now, what you were telling us, they were cast into pits of darkness, chained, reserved unto the day of judgment. So the fall of the angels is irretrievable. They cannot be brought back. Our fall has left us in a position where help can be administered to us. And God has chosen not to save the angels. Um, that should tell you something about the nature of God, too. Because I think our tendency, the way we evaluate things, would be to look at the most valuable and unique types of creatures and, and give attention to them first. We, I think we were playing the part of God here, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but we were the angels are so special. Look at all these things they do. And uh, so special that human beings tend to worship them. Overlook the rank of angels, and he goes to human beings and extends help to the seed of Abraham. What a perfect. Especially when you think of the fact that angels and they scratch their heads to be concerned about God sending the Son to suffer and to die with human beings. I think the angels thought it strange on the night they were singing to the shepherds about the king that had been born. Uh, I don't want to be apocryphal, but I thought there were some angels there going, just don't understand what's going on, but why would God care? But God doesn't say, our type of human or creature. And yet he sends his own sons, and not only saves them, but to die for them. There's a great wonder in salvation, and the doctrine of angels helps us to do that. The angels were very active during the time of Christ. They were active in the Old Testament as well, but I'm going to skip over that basically. But we see angels, as I said, announcing the birth of Jesus, saving Jesus to the shepherds. Where else do we see the angels in the life of Jesus? They ministered to Jesus at two places, though. At his temptation and in the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ is points Jesus' ministry. God's angels to minister to his son. To help him see what kind of trial. And then the angels are present at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? They become the announcers at the king. That he's not here. Why are you sleeping and living among the dead? Like, Didn't you understand what was going to come? You're in the wrong place, fellas. You, you, you come to the wrong place. And then at the ascension, the angels are present as well. Okay, so the life of Jesus, uh, we see a concentration of the work of angels in particular. And then the Bible tells us that Jesus, by his death and resurrection, and has triumphed over the angels. And that's the end of the two ways. One, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels by his incarnation. He was made human. But now he is exalted above the angelic host. And the one who is exalted above the angelic host has a human nature. And therefore our nature, our human nature, is now in God's sight higher than the angels because of the incarnation. We who are with Christ are seated with him in the heavenlies above all principality and power. 
And therefore, we are as the seed of Abraham to whom the angels minister now higher than angels. In fact, the Bible tells us that on the day of judgment, we will judge the angels. Where do I learn that? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul talks about not going to court against one another. He says, don't you realize that we're going to judge the angels one day? And if that's true, are you not able to take care of these simple matters of temporal judgment among yourselves? Uh, Colossians 2, verses 10 and 15, shows us another way in which we've been, excuse me, another way in which Jesus, our Savior, has triumphed over the angelic host. Colossians 2, at the 10th and 15th verses. And in him you are made full, who is the head of all principality and power, in whom you were also circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands, etc. In verse 15, having despoiled the principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, in his cross and resurrection. Jesus has despoiled the demonic host. Where they once terrorized planet Earth, Jesus has triumphed over them. In fact, he's making an open show of them, which is an ancient custom when you, you conquer a particular enemy, an army that you want to humiliate. You take the leaders of the army and you make an open display. You put them in chains and drag them behind you. Jesus is making an open show of his triumph over the demonic forces, Paul says. And then, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since then the children are sharers in flesh and blood. He also himself in like manner partook of the same, that through death he might bring to nothing him that had the power of death, that is the devil. You see, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he nullified the power of Satan, who had the power of death. Uh, and then Hebrews 1, verses 4 to 13. Having become by so much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then he again bringeth in the firstborn into the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the sun, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellow. And thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish without continuous. They shall all last all as does a garment. And as a mantle shalt thou roll them up, and as a garment they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But of which of the angels hath he said at any time, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thee thy enemies the footstool of thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to the service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation? So the history of angels, Jesus is above all angels uh, in his incarnate nature. He has conquered the demonic angels and is openly showing his triumph. And even in the case of the holy angels, they are him, and they're sent forth to do service to those who are going to inherit salvation. That leads him into the function of angels. Function of angels. Well, the Bible tells us that they do service to us. That's what angels are all about. They're here to serve us, to take care of us, to watch over us. Psalm 103, verse 20, tells us that they are called upon to carry out God's will in the world. Psalm 103, verse 20. Bless Jehovah, ye his angels that are mighty in strength, that fulfill his word, hearkening unto the voice of his word. Verse 21. Bless Jehovah, all ye his hosts, ministers of his that do his pleasure. So the angels are called upon to serve God and to carry out his will in the world, and in particular his will is that they do service unto those that shall inherit salvation. In Revelation 5, 11, we read that the angels worship God in heaven. So they worship God in heaven and they serve God's people on earth. In Acts 7, we read that God 
was ordained through angels on Mount Sinai. In Acts 12, 23, we see them executing judgment from God. Remember the story? Herod, you know, gave this oration, and the people said, The voice of a God. And an angel of God struck him dead with worms right then and there because he accepted that kind of adulation. Angels will accompany Jesus Christ at the time of the last judgment. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, as well as Matthew 13, verses 30 and 39. We read in all these verses that Jesus will return with his angels and in flaming fire. How about guardian angels? Are there guardian angels? Yes, there are guardian angels. He's right about it. Psalm 91, verses 10 to 12. No evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy tent, for he will give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou back thy foot against the stone. And then in Matthew 18, 10, with respect to Christ's little ones, uh, we've already read this before, let me just paraphrase it for you. Jesus talks about uh, offending these little ones while we shouldn't because they're angels um, in the presence of God. And um, So I think the Bible does give us sufficient reason to believe that there are guardian angels. But it does not help us to answer for sure the question whether each and every person has a guardian angel or whether they have a guardian angel for an entire life and all those kinds of questions. We do know that angels act as guardians. Very good illustration regarding the nature of angels. Remember Daniel was thrown in the lion's den? And God did what? Sent his angel to protect them so the lions wouldn't eat them. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, the deliverance not to be on the door in the name of his angels. Yes, but you see, you, you would have to say, Ollie, that that shows that it was a common belief at the time. And so if you didn't expect to see Peter, and seeing this appearance outside, they took, she took that to be Peter's angel. That doesn't mean that her theology was sound. It just means that way the way she knew some stuff that she was. Okay. I really thought I could get all this in. In, in better order than I have, and I apologize for the copy of the teaching style, but this tells you then systematically something about the biblical doctrine of angels. I do want to end by saying that so what? And we've just been sitting here tonight scratching our idle curiosities. Well, I don't think so, because the doctrine of angels, first of all, tells us something very precious about salvation and the nature of Christ's work. I've alluded to that already in what we brief on this point, but it's probably the most precious of all. And that's that uh, the angels know how wonderful our salvation is. They sing about it, they wonder about it. And Jesus, by becoming incarnate and being raised above the angels, has actually seated us above the angels with him to heaven. So that's something about how precious salvation is. And we should, we should uh, really praise God that we're saved people. But how can we live our lives as saved people? First of all, don't, uh, don't underestimate the battle that you are in. Paul tells us in Ephesians and 6 chapter, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, right? Powers of darkness. And so it is wrong for us as Christians to get up in the morning and just think, well, it's another day, I can make it, I'm, I'm doing this time. No problem in the Christian life today. Satan wants you to believe that. He wants you to think, this is not really serious stuff, this stuff about angels. Because his demons are going to work you down. You wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with demonic forces. And so you need the whole armor of God. You get serious about reading your Bible, about prayer, the holiness of conduct, because you are wrestling with demonic forces. That's one thing. And now I'm going to sound like I don't mean that. Both of these are there. Don't overestimate the difficulty of the battle either. You really get very discouraged when you think, well, I'm no match for Satan. There's this terrible battle and it's such a struggle to be a Christian and so forth. Don't get down. You need to remember the angels minister to us. I want to remind you of the story of Elijah's servant. You know, he goes out one day and 
see the Syrian army that surrounded the city and was there to capture Elisha. He comes in there with all concerned, Elisha's not concerned. You know, there are these armies out here. You've got to be upset about this. And Elisha takes him out and prays to God would open his eyes. And when his eyes are open, what does he do? Serious suppliers surrounding the Syrian army. The angels of God are there too. Now, Elisha. I don't know whether that was special revelation or the theology of the day that he had real confidence in, but Elisha knew the angels were there to protect him. He says, they who are with us are more than they who are with us. I need to remember that, that God has made provision by his angels to help us in the spiritual struggle. And the angels who are with us are not only more, but mightier than those that are in the world and that work against us. Don't underestimate the spiritual battle. Don't overestimate it. It's a spirit side of it. Okay, so last question. Yes. Okay. During the uh, study of the book of Hebrews, when we came across that, um, yeah, we touched on that. And I said, I, I, as I recall, we need to know something about the nature of angels. Is it is possible for them to come into our lives to be messengers that God has sent, and we're not even aware of it. However, um, if I were going to argue we can encounter angels today, I think that an adequate rebuttal would be that the author of Hebrews is undoubtedly referring to the story of Abraham entertaining angels at the end of the encounter. And, um, the author says, because angels are that kind of being, because we see angels, because Abraham went through that kind of experience, he's saying, remember to be hospitable to strangers. Um, the comeback to that is, well, why, why remind us that that's a possibility if we're not going to have that uh, happen to us? I mean, why, why use that as a motive for helping strangers that there have been angels entertained unawares if we're not going to ever entertain angels unawares? And so I hold open, you know, I, I'm not 100% one way or another, I hold open the possibility, um, though the reference is clearly to Abraham, that the expression, the, the expectation based on that means perhaps I could run into an angel every once in a while too. But I wouldn't know it. Yes. Are there angelic forces? Angelic forces? Forces. Yes. Apparently so. Isn't that what Elijah's servant saw? Chariots of fire. I don't have any indication of that. He struggled with other angels that might have been fighting, you know, but I don't think they had any kind of struggle. Well, I think that's, that's a good line of reasoning. Um, but it's also possible that what Paul's referring to is that we will be agents declaring the word of God by which the holy and um, fallen angels are differentiated on the word of God. Does that the angel of death come the window the angel of death the angel of death the angel of death and the angel of death the angel of death and 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 the angel not a reference to faith, but it's a specific uh, angel given the task and the power to inflict God's judgment. Do you think I didn't get into that either. Boy, there's so much here. I guess I should have said we'll do a series on this. <laughs> then you may have never done it. But I believe that the angel of Jehovah in the old Logos, the second member of the Trinity, but there is an angel of Jehovah in the New Testament as well that is not Jesus. So it may be that expression is not um, a specific title, but a function, and that in most of the Old Testament cases, that function was that of Christ before he came to earth. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.